We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to another Water Cooler Conversation, a safe space for ideas, free of trigger warnings, privilege checking and problematizing, where our cancellation policy is simple. We don't. The explosion in the number of conversations like this one is one of the best things to have come out of the coronavirus pandemic. Ideas like people thrive in a free market, and that's just what we've got. With this ever-expanding choice of podcasts and videocasts available to us coming from around the world, the barrier to entry is low and getting lower as the technology improves. An Australian company, Rode, has become a world leader in the development of equipment for podcasts, like this NT1 microphone I'm speaking to you on now, which is stamped on the back, Made in Australia. We like to think of ourselves as innovators at the Menzies Research Centre. We began messing around with podcasts in July 2018, when Fred Paul and I sat down in front of a couple of old microphones and just started talking. We've learned from our mistakes, we've tinkered with the format, lifted our sights on the production values, and we'll just keep doing that. I'd love to get your feedback. The email address should be in the notes attached to this edition, but I'll give it to you anyway. Watercooler at menziesrc.org. And uh, please, if you can, give us five stars. Those ratings are crucial in building audiences, which is, of course, what we're trying to do. In this edition, I'm delighted to be joined by my opposite number at the Institute of Public Affairs, John Roscombe. From the day I started in my role here at the Menzies Research Centre, John has been a great source of guidance and encouragement. I've got to know him as a friend and a mentor, and we talk regularly, as we're going to do today. But in the light of the lockdowns, we thought, well, why don't we invite others in to listen to the conversation? John's been a director at the IPA since 2005. Before that, he taught political theory at the University of Melbourne. And he cut his teeth in the think tank world in this job, my job, as the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre, which just goes to show there is career progression in this job. John, welcome to the water cooler. Hello, Nick. It's an honour to be with you and the MRC. Yeah, indeed, John. I, I, what I want to do today is um, you and I catch up whenever we can to to talk about this whole topic, the big world of ideas, the centre-right, um, contribution to it, what the challenges are. And I just thought, well, why don't we just share it? It's always such a great conversation. So thanks. No, it'll be great to, to talk with you. And as part of your introduction you talked about the growth of uh, online discussions and I've got to give you and these research centre full credit you led the debate and the way on this very early on in March and April last year and the IPA has followed and many other organisations have followed what you've been doing we haven't been able to have um, events in person we've gone to virtual events um, and we've all got used to taking us ourselves off mute um, but it's been a great opportunity to engage with lots of people that we never otherwise would have. Yeah, and of course, our friends on the left want to put us back on mute permanently, but uh, <laughs> as maybe later in the conversation. John, first of all, just by way of background, I don't know about you, but I didn't... Well, I think when the teacher asked us to put our hands up and say what we wanted to be when we were grown up, I, I don't recall saying I wanted to be the executive director of a centre-right think tank. Did, did you? No, I wanted to be a racing car driver or the prime minister. Um, I haven't got quite close to either of those. Um, but 
I always had an interest in in ideas. So my parents came to Australia after the Second World War. My father was Dutch, mother's Polish. She's still with us. And when you grow up with uh, your father's copies of Solzhenitsyn and George Orwell on the bookshelves and your mother talks about how her town was invaded first by the Germans and then by the Russians and you grow up uh, understanding that people have come to Australia for a better world, a better life. Uh, some involvement in politics was going to be inevitable with public policy. I was um, in, uh, I met uh, my good friend Bill Shorten in grade six at a Catholic primary school here in Melbourne. He was always Labor. I was always Liberal. We were always debating ideas. And uh, I joined the uh, Liberal Club at Melbourne University the first day uh, of orientation week. I joined the Liberal Party a few weeks. After that, I worked for the state government, for the Kennett government, for the Howard government, always had an interest in, in politics and ideas. It was lucky enough to, to teach politics. As you mentioned, uh, Nick, at the University of Melbourne, I don't know whether a self-avowed liberal would be allowed loose in front of 200 first-year students uh, these days, but I've had a wonderful career engaged in the battle of ideas and engaged in really important things at an important time in our future. You, you, you raised something in your background which struck a chord with me, and that was uh, you were acutely aware uh, for family reasons, and I suppose because of the era in which you grew up and I grew up, that there was this central philosophical and political battle to be fought between freedom and tyranny. Uh, I think I was... And I was grew, grew up in Britain, as you know, uh, in, the, in the Cold War, in the height of the Cold War. And, and I don't know, I had a fascination for shortwave radio and would listen to Radio Tirana coming from uh, Albania or Radio Moscow broadcasting in the English language. This strange propaganda, which I was fascinated with. But I, I just think it meant for, our, for us in that period who remember the Cold War, uh, it, we, we were never really on any doubt which side we should be on. I wonder if without those great battles, uh, th that's less clear for current generations, uh, or maybe that uh, the rise of a more assertive China, China is making it clear. What are your thoughts? Nick, I, I agree. I, I think um, what is happening is now that we understand the terrain of democracy and freedom. So I'm 53. Uh, my heroes at school and university were the big three, uh, John Paul II, and I had a distant cousin ordained uh, by Carol Boitira, as he was then, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Uh, and in the late 70s, early 80s, involved in student politics, looking at the geopolitics of the world at the time, uh, the struggles for freedom were very clear. Uh, you look at the Berlin Wall, it was there literally in concretized form what we were fighting for. Um, and my argument has always been that at the end of the uh, Cold War in the early 90s, too many liberals, too many conservatives, too many libertarians took at face value Francis Fukuyama's uh, central claim that the battle of ideas had been won. I think we rested on our laurels. We assumed that the 80s and 90s uh, would continue, whether in the US or here in Australia. That, you know, we, we assumed we wouldn't always get a liberal 
prime minister, but we assumed at worst we'd get a hawk. Um, the, the cultural left, uh, we assumed, had uh, receded after the flower power and uh, the excesses of the 60s and the 70s. Um, and I think uh, we didn't understand how good uh, the times were. We forgot how to engage in the battle of ideas. We forgot Ronald Reagan's dictum that every generation has to win its own freedom. And we just assumed that freedom was going to be um, taken for granted. We lost control. Well, we didn't lose control of institutions. We assumed that institutions, whether they were cultural institutions, civic institutions, the church, the military education facilities would always assume, for example, that Western civilization by and large was a good thing. Um, and we now understand that if we don't fight for these ideas, we are going to lose them as we are doing right now. I suppose it's the rapidity with, with which this seems to have happened, John. I mean, my memory, I took over here in 2014 and, and you were very kind enough to serve as my mentor, telling me, um, uh, you know, how you go about if running only. <laughs> But I, I remember having early discussions around that time, I think you would have put some on about the threat to Western civilization. And uh, it was the first time that I'm sure it had been going on for some time, but it was the first time that I started to conceive of it as that kind of battle, you know, not just a heap of annoyances about political correctness or idiots on campuses doing this that, and the other, but actually a serious battle. And that's only seven years ago or so. And yet today, nobody can be in, in any doubt of where the, where, the, where the front line is. Nick, that's exactly right. And I think what you've identified are a couple of threads uh, to this really important discussion. A few years ago, when Jordan Peterson was here in Australia, I was lucky enough to, to meet him and talk with him. And I asked him a question uh, that he would have been asked a hundred times before, but he pretended like it was the first time he had ever been asked the question. And I said, to what do you attribute your success? A simple, basic question, but I wanted to know, and I was deeply influenced by him and still are. Um, and he said, look, I take life seriously. I take culture seriously. And I think in the 80s and 90s, um, we forgot that culture is everything, that politics, as Breitbart said, is downstream of culture. We took it for granted. I get terribly frustrated, terribly angry when the left and some on the right say these are merely culture wars. No. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, um, our family, our community, that is central. I mean, it, it might be a bit heretical to say um, budget deficits come and go, uh, although in our lifetime, I don't think uh, budget deficits are going anytime soon. Um, but economics is secondary um, to exactly, as you're talking about, Nick, these big issues. When I started at the IPA in 2005, I thought I'd be doing federalism. I thought I'd be doing tax. I thought I'd be doing red tape. And of course, that was the focus of the IPA for many years and still is to a large extent. Little did I think we would be talking about the fundamental questions about what is it that makes us human? What is important about Western civilization? Why uh, freedom of speech is so, is so central? We started, as you said, our Foundations of Western Civilization program some 10 years ago as we were starting to see the beginnings of these challenges, which exactly as you say, have come on so much quicker and so much more thoroughly than we ever could have anticipated. Yeah, I mean, I always resisted some of those ideas were involved in this monumental battle over 
the legacy of the Enlightenment versus going back to some dark, darkened uh, pre-rational age when, when superstition reigned. But um, I must admit, more and more, that seems to be what happens. Now we have, um, you know, on, on, the, on the intellectual left, which is increasingly the mainstream left, these ideas about critical theory, critical race theory, uh, post-colonial theory, the whole gamut, which are basically uh, faith and superstition. They, they're not, they're not, they don't even pretend that these are cases based on evidence. They are theories. But they dominate the way increasingly people on the left think about issues and politics. That, that's right. But I'd go further on, Nick. I don't think it's mainstream left. I think it's the mainstream. We see that now embedded in the school curriculum, uh, in the university curriculum. And um, I'm quite struck by the, and we'll come to this, by the discussion out of the United States, um, whereby the attempt to theorise everything and make everything subjective, which is to some extent what the humanities have been, uh, debate the humanities have been struggling with for 100 years, is now being applied to science. So the right answer is not the right answer. It is how you feel about an answer and we're now getting uh, overseas and we have to fight it coming here to Australia, this idea that to give the right answer, the correct answer and to show your workings is somehow an expression of white hegemony. Well, you know, I want an engineer to show his or her workings when they build the bridge that I'm going to be driving over or a surgeon knowing what they're doing if they're operating on me. But um, we, have, we have seen this as we have alluded to, happen very quickly. And the left have been pushing on an open door because until recently, we never had to assert that freedom of speech was a good thing. I assumed freedom of speech would be um, taken for granted. And in my experience at the IPA, the very first time I saw that it wasn't taken for granted, even in the Liberal Party, was, of course, when Julia Gillard and the Greens uh, set up what's called the Finkelstein Inquiry that gave us a report that basically said we should regulate the media or the government should regulate the media. Um, the report came out and I automatically assumed um, that the right and left would unite and say, this is government censorship. We haven't had it since the 17th century in the English speaking world in this form. It has to be abolished. But no, you, you had uh, the left in the media uh, saying, they weren't using the word misinformation then. They were just saying false facts and these sorts of things. That had to be regulated. That had to be controlled. And um, the Liberal Party itself as, as a whole uh, at the time was afraid to confront these basic arguments. And the party in the end uh, in opposition did come out against the Finkelstein uh, recommendations. They were ultimately dropped by the Labor Party. But it was a hell of a fight for six months when it should have been just dismissed out of hand in five minutes. Well, I, I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to the IPA and yourself for the way you've not just upheld the principles of freedom, but you've actually got your hands dirty. You've actually got down there in the weeds, if you like, and got involved in high profile cases uh, and invested heavily in defending people like Peter Ridd and with some success. Um, you, you tell me, do you, do you feel like you're winning this one battle at a time or, or is it harder than that? Oh, when you're engaged in an intergenerational war, you, it's very hard to make an assessment of whether you're winning uh, battles or not. But I, I think 
we are gaining some successes. I think, Nick, even to fight is sometimes to win, to let people know that they are supported. What strikes me about what the IPA has been able to do, so, for example, to support uh, Peter Ridd, as you mentioned, to support Chris Decker, who's a student at the Queensland University of Technology, who's one of our campus coordinators, um, and he and the IPA were banned from, from the campus by the Student Association, uh, whether it is to support the other QUT students, of course, who had a Section 18C claim uh, made against them uh, after they turned up at a computer lab at the university and simply had a conversation about how you fight racial inequality. Um, what strikes me is a, is a couple of things that um, if, if you or me or Andrew Bolt, as he was taken, uh, was taken to court for Section 18C, then um, we might be lucky enough to have a support group around us. We might be lucky enough to have resources and have access to people who want to help us. But the challenge with freedom of speech is they're not going to come after Nick Cater and John Roskam, although they might. You know, they come after Susan Smith, people who don't watch Sky News, people who don't subscribe to The Australian, people who don't know who their local member of parliament is. But it is these people, it is mainstream Australians who are so often targeted, who self-censor, um, and that's what the IPA has been able to do. So when Zoe Bueller, of course, the, the mother in Ballarat here in Victoria, was arrested by the Victoria police in her living room and handcuffed in front of her children for putting up a Facebook post supporting a protest. Um, when I spoke to Zoe and offered her um, the support of the IPA, she, of course, had no idea uh, who or what the Institute of Public Affairs was. Um, but it was the ability to help people uh, in their time of need. Um, and again, if you were on the left, you, had, you would have no limit to government agencies, to non-government agencies, to, to pro bono legal advice. But uh, if you are someone like Zoe Bueller basically saying, I've lost my job, my friends have lost their job. There is no way out for us in this lockdown. Why can't I express a political opinion? Here in Parliament, here in Victoria at the time, I think Parliament had been suspended. So uh, there was no way for people to express their views. So what the IPA has been able to do is been able to put people in touch with lawyers. We've been able to provide some support and also give publicity um, to these very important cases. And that's publicity based on our, on our research because ultimately we have to be fighting and defending a principle. You, you touched on COVID and, uh, more importantly, the handling of the, co the COVID pandemic by not just Australian governments, but governments around the world. And there has been this, um, a common feature has been this switch towards totalitarian ways of handling this, top down, if you like, you know, uh, trying to, to do things from command from the top rather than by encouraging uh, people to look after their neighbours, take sensible precautions, bring that community spirit rising up, which, which has solved so many of our problems in the past. Um, I guess, uh, where's this question going, you might ask, but I, I, I suppose the first thing, and we need to exercise our minds about, John, is just how many, how much freedom we have surrendered and how we set about getting it back. And you've spoken and written about this very eloquently, Nick. And this comes to our earlier point 
about freedom of speech. We have lost our freedoms to talk to our friends, to see our family, to work in the blink of an eye. It has happened so quickly. I think we assumed that governments would always be reasonable. They would always be proportionate. I, Nick, have to admit to you, and we've spoken about this, I got COVID completely wrong. Um, when it appeared on our shores last year, we understood it was serious. We understood it was a dangerous threat. And we understood precautions uh, had to be taken. And in some circumstances, precautions that wouldn't have been contemplated in uh, times of normality. But I also assumed, so we understood that, but I also assumed that governments would attempt, Labor and Liberal would attempt, state and federal would attempt to let us lead our lives as best we can in as normal a way as we can, so that we would attempt to live as best we can within the constraints of a dangerous challenge. But no, what governments did was clamp down on everything straight away. Right? They, if they had to make an error, it was an error in favour of totalitarianism. It mm. was not in favour of letting us work, letting us live our lives, let us take precautions, let us have a serious conversation with Australian people about what must be done. I thought that after a few months, governments would start to understand we can't live like this. We are now 18 months into it. And I think whether it's freedom of speech, whether it's the ability to work and and whether it is the ability to see our friends and family, um, we took all of these things for granted. I think technology has given government uh, far more powers than ever could have been contemplated. Um, as many people have said, we seem to take every lesson from COVID from an authoritarian communist government. Um, we didn't trust people. We handed over vast power to unelected scientists and bureaucrats had a media um, who flourished in a state of fear. And now uh, we have a situation where governments don't know how to get out of this. It is their pride. It is the pride of politicians that will not acknowledge we must now change tack. It is the media who won't acknowledge um, that we have a serious condition that we must deal with, but not in the way we are continuing to do it. And we've also revealed the very great divide in society between those in the public sector, those in the professional elites, and you have spoken very eloquently about this, who are very happy to work at home uh, in their five-bedroom houses, who haven't had their pay cut, uh, and we have the rest of Australia who are losing jobs. In, in IPA analysis shows New South Wales with this latest lockdown is losing something like 10,000 jobs a day. And it frustrates me when people say these are merely jobs versus lives. Well, no, a job is a life. And the idea, we lost the debate very early on when we said this was about lives versus the economy, it's lives versus lives. So all of it has happened in the blink of an eye. I've never known a public policy issue that's been so devoid of rational uh, debate and discussion, instead so overwhelmed with sentiment. And the dominant sentiment is fear, which is a, a very powerful emotion. Uh, and, and that 
got caught up, I think. I'm, I'm going to be a little bit kinder to politicians and you, John. I think they are caught up in this spiral of fear. They don't know how to get off. So people were worried. Uh, at the start, it seemed horrible in order to get people to take sensible precautions. Um, of course, we had to give them information which only reinforced those fears. Uh, and so it's going on. But we're now at a point where the politicians, it seems to me, are unable to take a proportionate response to risk. So when the Doherty uh, Institute comes back and says, well, you could take it a six, vaccination to 60%, 70%, 80%, and they'll, they'll model what they think is the impact. And of course, the marginal uh, hospitalization saved or however you measure it, it gets smaller and smaller the larger you get. But what happens? National cabinet just goes 80. They just, they just go to the, the most risk averse response. And uh, whilst one could wish for more courage from our politicians, I understand how very, very hard it is to push back against what's a very strong feeling in the community by now. Oh, look, Nick, you're right. And we need to understand that by and large, a majority of the community is of that view. A majority of the community would like the minority locked up with them. And the other thing that we've seen is not just fear, but uh, something that people like Brandon O'Neill and Daniel Hannon, who've been guests on the program, have spoken about. We're now seeing the moral superiority. I am more moral than you because I will go outside wearing a mask, even though there's not 100 metres, someone within 100 metres of, of, uh, of me. I am more moral than you because I will gladly work at home on full income if I'm a public service servant and I'll even get a pay rise. Whereas you working with your hands outside, Nick, don't you care about the community? And when you say, well, I've lost an income and you haven't, say, well, don't you care? This is, and the desire to express moral superiority, I think has always been present in a lot of public policy debates. It's present in the climate change debate. It is present in how we deal with COVID and you are spot on, we are struggling with sentiment. And that makes it very difficult for politicians to then explain anything using other than sentiment. Well, let's move on to what we touched on at the start, and that's how you and I have been escaping, if you like, the lockdown by taking ourselves into this wonderful world of ideas, which is now so vibrant uh, on YouTube, on podcasts, other medium too. I just find it so exhilarating that you can tap into a conversation between, say, uh, Peter Robinson and, and Neil Ferguson and just hear them shooting the breeze and then the next week. It's like we're in the room with some of the smartest people in the world, right? <laughs> and it's got to be good. That has got to be good for the centre-right, which so often feels you know, isolated and fragmented. Oh, look, and, and absolutely. And I think it also reveals how narrow our perspective was before this. Australia is a wonderful and special country, but in many senses, it's quite intellectually small. I think we have seen now that we have access to some of the best debates and discussions from around the world, what Australians had been missing out on. I think we had seen uh, that in uh, the UK or the US, there is a much more active, vibrant, diverse 
centre-right discussion going on in those countries uh, than has taken place in Australia because we're relatively small. And we've also seen that there are now alternatives to the mainstream media and the narrative that uh, they have controlled for the last 50 years. I think it's very, very exciting. And it's no surprise that the left are now coming uh, attempting to, for example, censor Sky News on YouTube. They are taking people off platforms. Uh, they are uh, making every effort they can to continue to control the debate. Well, that's, that's in a sense, that shows that we are making an impact with alternative yes. ideas. Yeah. You know, just another perspective from that dull kind of tedious uniformity you hear so often when you come to issues. Uh, but the, um, John, the, the, what concerns me, and we've talked about this earlier today, is it's terrific to have, you know, Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson and all, and, and all these great brains that we can listen to. Uh, but there's a real danger, it seems to me. It's okay to export your car industry, right, on the basis that we just are too small to compete on world terms in making cars. But if we export our ideas industry, sure, we get, we get the benefit of a lot of really skilled people, but we lose touch with the specific issues we're dealing here with in Australia, which are so often quite, I mean, even if they're the same issues, uh, they're often quite different here because of our cultural history and, and so forth. Uh, and the big advantage, the big, the big example of the dangers of this to me was Black Lives Matter. Uh, suddenly the whole world, it seemed, had imported this movement, which is uh, wrong-headed, let's not beat about the bush, but nonetheless, within the American context, you can see uh, why it, where it fits in with their, their history of slavery, of Jim Crow. Uh, it's a very different legacy that they have than the one that, say, we have here with, with no slavery whatsoever, but, but no doubt distinct uh, unfinished business to deal with uh, regarding, you know, with the indigenous population. It, it just seems to me that it could be very destructive to import those, those particular ideas here. Yes, I, I agree with some of that, Nick. I think the idea uh, that we shouldn't import holus bolus ideas and ideologies from overseas is right. And I think Black Lives Matter has very little application to Australia. I think even the climate change debate that uh, Boris Johnson is talking about has very little uh, purchase in Australia when you understand that what is it, 20% of uh, the UK's electricity comes from nuclear power. So it's very easy for Boris Johnson to say Australia should follow his path towards net zero. So I think that's one part of it. I think that the second part of it is that I do think a lot of these debates are universal. And uh, for someone like me trying to make sense of what I think is sometimes the intellectual totalitarianism of Australia, you know, I, I get great sucker by by reading an Orwell or a Solzhenitsyn or a Vaclav Havel, and you look at um, how people uh, in Eastern Europe in the 60s dealt with issues of conscience, when to be protesting would be to get arrested, when you feared your neighbours dobbing you in, when you had to censor yourself, when 
you lived in a one-party state and in Victoria at the moment where I'm living, Nick, I don't think we're that far from a one-party state where most of the institutions um, are controlled or very heavily influenced by the government. So I, I think we can get the best of both worlds. I think we can understand what it is uh, to be uniquely Australian, but I think it also helps us understand that the challenges we're facing are not unique to us. Yeah, I, I, I get that, but I guess what I'm saying is we want we, we, we can't let off from trying to generate really strong uh, ideas here and to encourage more smart people to get into this debate and, and just enrich it. I, I just feel that uh, you know, I think we do very well here compared to uh, our friends in New Zealand uh, and some other countries. Possibly we do well in comparison to Britain at times, but we do need, we've got a deficit, haven't we, of good ideas here? Oh, look, I think you're right. And we, we don't want to be crowded out um, by others from overseas. But I, you know, every time, and I talk to young people about this, every time, they see you talking to Brendan O'Neill or Douglas Murray, for example, they say, I want to do that in Darwin. Or, you know, I want to go to Mark McGowan and say, listen to what Brendan O'Neill said. So I think uh, we can do it. I think the idea of doing it uh, virtually, the idea of talking into your phone, of just taping it, of expressing an idea and putting it out there on the internet, most often, unless you're censored, the best idea wins, the best voice wins. Um, and I think uh, what we're seeing is now an explosion of centre-right thinking and discussion in debate um, that I certainly would not have anticipated even, even five years ago. And I see us talking about um, big issues, not trivialities anymore, big issues confronting us as, as nations and countries and as a humanity. Let's talk a moment about the benefits of talking to the choir. I mean, I'm sure you, you hear this all the time, as I do. Ah, oh, yes, you, you're doing great things at the Mendes Research Centre, Nick, but you, you're not reaching people who are not already pretty solidly on our, of that point of view. Um, and I go, yeah, but I, don't, I, I really have learnt since I've been in this job that not to underestimate the importance of talking to people who are broadly on your side, because at this time, when there's so much pressure on people not to voice their innermost thoughts and, and, uh, and, and to, to suppress ideas or suppress dissent, um, and the, the, the consequences of not doing so can be, can be so, so terrible, uh, that I feel we play a role in, um, in reinforcing and just saying, well, look, it's, it's okay to think the way you do. It's okay to question the way you do. And, I forever get this great thrill when we do live events in particular to see people thrilled, almost to be liberated for an evening. They can talk freely amongst friends. Look, Nick, I completely agree. And I get that all the time. Aren't you just talking to people who already agree with you? Uh, and what I say is we don't quite know who we are talking to. We don't talk to someone to agree with them. We don't talk with someone to necessarily change their opinion, although that's a bonus. We talk to someone and with someone because we want to communicate what we believe in. And we don't know whether someone will believe in something uh, or not until we express a view. And exactly as you just mentioned, 
The biggest thrill is to hear someone saying, thank you for saying that. I didn't have the research or the analysis until you talked about it. Now I have the argument. So this idea that we always have to get to 50 plus one is not right. That's what politicians do in a democracy. 50 plus one percent gets you elected as it should. What we do in the ideas business is express our beliefs, our arguments, our principles, and people will follow. And I think one of the things that the left do very well is they talk to their followers and they understand. And again, um, I've mentioned his name already a couple of times, but I'll mention it again. Uh, or Jordan Peterson or Brett Weinstein speak about the fact, and I think it's true, and there's research coming out um, from America on this, and we are going to apply it to an Australian context, um, that some of the loudest voices in the public debate, in the policy debate, some of the most extreme voices are only a very, very small minority. So what we need to understand is that we need to um, talk to everyone as much as we can, but we don't modify what we say, we don't compromise what we say as far as possible, and then we say it and people follow. And I think that's the difference between working in the world of ideas and principles that we do versus the idea of politics and pragmatism of democratically elected politicians. Well, you touched on something else important there, I think, and that's not to get overwhelmed with the size of the opposition, your enemies, because um, we've just discovered this recently, actually. We've, we've got a, a new tool that allows us to come, you know, everything that's being said about the Menzies Research Centre or the IPA or on Twitter or wherever will come up. And you look at it in the morning and think, oh, no, you know, there's there's a hundred negative tweets on there that they've been able to find just at the drop of a hat about stuff we're doing. Surely, um, you know, we're not reigned against such great forces. But when you go and look at it, it's almost always just one tweet that's been repeated a hundred times by people, probably without even thinking. So it's funny that since I've started to look at this, I'm less frightened of it. Yeah, exactly. And politicians are frightened. I've had MPs on both sides of the house talk to me about how um, Twitter biases their views because they get on Twitter and exactly as you say, they only get uh, one school of thought uh, and they think that's how the world thinks. And um, I remember I was doing some ABC radio here in, in Melbourne and I was on a panel and I uh, was talking about um, the outcome, I think it was the 2013 election, and I was on a panel with a bunch of people who literally had never uh, met anyone who voted Liberal for the last five years, uh, and they don't know anyone who'd voted Liberal uh, at the election. So you can get a very biased view uh, of a small cross-segment of people. Um, but I, it comes back to what we were just saying. If you stick to your principles and what you believe, um, it doesn't matter whether one person agrees with you or a million people ag agree with you. And right at the minute, what we're finding in our jobs is that there's a lot more people who agree with us but than uh, is public, but they self-censor. They don't want to lose their job. They don't want to lose their position on the school council. And they don't want their neighbours shouting at them. Um, and we are speaking, I believe, both of our and both of our organisations for and to mainstream 
Australia, I, I have an email inbox full of people who work at law firms, at the consulting firms, at the, uh, the professional services firms who talk to me about climate change, for example. And they'll send me an email about climate change and energy policy. And they'll say, there's this problem, this problem, this problem with the arguments pushed by the left. And there's actually this answer, but I'd love to, and I actually have a degree of expertise in this area, but there's no way I could ever say this publicly or I could even say it to my boss. So I want to pass it on to the IPA. I've got, I've got school teachers uh, who say, I can't say this in the staff room, but thank you so much for the IPA's material on Western civilization. I couldn't get it anywhere else um, and I'm using it, but I'm not telling my principal. You know, that's, that's what we face and uh, uh, it's, it's a challenge, but as long as we stick to our principles, um, then I think we'll succeed. John, one of, the, one of the great things about having you on this discussion is I can take a break from uh, what I normally do, which is to look down the barrel of the camera and appeal to people to subscribe and donate to the Menzies Research Centre. I think I'll take a break today and I, I, I give them every reason why they should subscribe and donate to the IPA. And, and the one thing I think that you do is so valuable and we will see a return for this uh, for many years to come is your investment in universities and in young people. It's a huge task you've taken on. You've done it with great ambition. You've accomplished a great deal. Tell us about that work. Oh, thank you. So um, one of the things, Nick, that our 7,000 members talk to us about is importance of education. Uh, the idea that young people should understand their role in our heritage and our civilization, um, and they know that they are not getting young people are not getting this at schools or universities. So, Generation Liberty is what we call our young persons program. Um, it started with one university, University of Sydney, where we um, had one campus coordinator, as we call them. We're now in more than twenty universities, and we have a, we have lectures. Um, we have debates inducing people to the ideas they would not get otherwise. Um, we've just started what we're calling the Better Red Than Dead book, book Club, which is to introduce young people to the great ideas of humanity, to get them to understand history, to get them to understand markets and the power of, of choice and, and human agency. Um, we have a very strong history strand in that that gets young people to understand all the things we've been talking about that that freedom cannot be taken for granted. And what we are finding is that there's huge demand from young people for information, for debate discussion about the great books and, and the great ideas. Uh, they're finding out about people who they've only heard of as names. So for example, your tremendous work on Robert Menzies, uh, we will be drawing upon because uh, the idea that political figures can change history is now something not taught in university because everything is about the uh, forces of history and, and Marxism. So um, there's a huge desire for learning. And the other thing that we're finding is um, the idea that young people have attention spans of only a TikTok video of three seconds is completely wrong. Um, we are finding a huge interest in two, three-hour-long discussions and again we've mentioned his name there's there's a reason joe rogan is is successful with his two and three hour long podcasts because people 
uh, want to understand things in depth. They want to understand different sides of a story. They don't want to uh, just get things through sound bites. And they are interested and engaged and their understanding, they are missing out on the inheritance that we have been lucky enough to experience. John, finally, um, um, I, I thank you for uh, supporting Fred Paul in his work in writing this magnificent new biography of the cartoonist Bill Leake. I'm very excited. I think it's a great book. And uh, more than that, it's a very important book uh, uh, as, a, as a, a marking out a point in our history where um, freedom uh, of expression really came under threat with, uh, as you know, tragic consequences. Tell us about the book. When's it coming out? Well, Nick, Die Laughing, written by Fred Paul, has its origins in your support for Fred's work. The Institute of Public Affairs has been delighted to support Fred in the publication of the book. Uh, the book is now available for pre-order sales on the IPA website, ipa.org.au. The book will be in bookshops in the next few weeks. Subject to COVID restrictions, we are looking forward uh, to having launches around the country, subject to what the state premiers will allow us to do. Um, and as you said, Nick, um, the book is magnificent, written by Fred. Fred uh, is a close friend of Bill Leake. Uh, Fred has had the full support of Bill's family in writing not just a wonderful story about one of Australia's very greatest artists, but also telling the story of Bill's life and times, of how someone who basically started out on the left uh, came to be a champion for freedom. And what Fred writes about is Bill's artistic journey, which is one uh, of integrity, which is one of honesty and truth. Uh, and that is how Bill came to the debate uh, that he suffered at the hands of government agencies for when he used his art uh, and his skills to talk about one of Australia's most pressing social problems, which is uh, the challenge of uh, young Indigenous Australians and the criminal justice system. Um, and it's an important book and your support for Bill, your support for Fred, uh, and everything the MRC has done for this cause is absolutely recognised in the book. Um, and I think together we are doing something very important. I last saw um, uh, Bill at a launch at the Centre for Independent Studies um, uh, just a little uh, time before his death. And I think all of us are, who believe in freedom, who believe in a better Australia at the MRC or the CIS or the IPA, you know, oh, oh, Bill Leake, uh, such a huge debt of gratitude. And uh, Fred has done uh, Bill and his cause great justice in this magnificent book, Die Laughing, the biography of Bill Leake. Well, that's a very important point on which to close. Thank you again for that, John. We'll put a link to your website on the notes to this podcast so that people can go on and order. I was only joking, by the way, about not plugging support for the Menzies Research Centre. You'll see up behind you a QR code. Don't be alarmed. You don't have to check into this show.
but it would be great if you could click on that and that'll take you through to our subscriptions page and you can subscribe to the Men's Research Centre from just $10 a month and that will support the work we do and support more of these podcasts and uh, discussions which we just want to have. John, it only remains to say thank you very much for joining us and uh, the very, the very, all the very best for the important uh, work of the IPA. Great to be with you, Nick. And can I say thank you for all the work you and the Menzies Research Centre and the MRC's supporters do for Australia. Thanks, John. And let's, let's do this again soon. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening.